This episode of The Incubator is proudly sponsored by Chiesi. Do you find yourself juggling multiple websites and clinical tools as you care for your patients? NeoCarePal is a resource providing access to multiple clinical calculators in just one place. To learn more, visit nicuconnections.com backslash NeoCarePal. This is The Incubator, a weekly discussion about new advances in neonatology and the fascinating individuals who make this progress possible. I am Dr. Ben Korsha. And I'm Dr. Daphne Yasova-Barbeau. We are neonatal intensive care physicians. Welcome. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Incubator Podcast. It is Sunday. We're doing Journal Club. Daphna, how are you? I'm doing great, buddy. How are you? I'm doing good. It's a busy week. And uh, I'm very happy about, uh, despite the fact that we're working a lot, I guess we're paying back a lot of these shifts that we took out to go to the next society. But uh, we're still... Must always pay the piper, isn't that There's no such thing as a free lunch. (laughs) But... um, I'm very happy that we have a packed journal club today. So this is yeah, very we've got a lot, exciting. A lot of interesting uh, avenues. <laughs> yeah. So uh, just to give you a preview of what's coming today, we have some articles that we would like to review. We are uh, very excited to have Nick Bamet from CHOP to uh, go over his commentary for the EB Neo article of the month. And we have a special guest this week on the Incubator podcast talking to us about the recent um, talking to us about the recent paper on the management of um, on the management of seizures in the neonate. We have one of the co-authors, Dr. Renee Shalhas, to come talk to us about the paper, some of her interpretations. So it's very very cool. So um, this is definitely going to go over an hour, I think. So we better get started soon. Anything you need to go over, um, Daphna? I think I'm just going to plug this right now before we get started. Um, I know there's been some issues with the website. We're rolling out a new version of it. So some pages are coming up as I'm getting time to update them. And um, But the exciting thing is that we're gearing up for Delphi 2024. So if you are interested in purchasing uh, your seats for Delphi, it's... If you've been to Delphi 2023, it's it's limited seating. So if you want to purchase a seat, the, the tickets are available already. And there's also tickets available for a TEDx event that we are hosting. Now, if you are coming to Delphi, you automatically get a seat for the TEDx event. So you don't need to purchase both. And if you want to nominate a speaker for Delphi, just send us an email. Uh, we'll be happy to. We're actually in the planning phase we have a lot of the speaker lineup already planned out, um, but if you want to see someone on the Delphi stage or or anything like that, then please let us know. And we're releasing videos of the Delphi 2023 mm-hmm. uh, 
conference uh, once a week. And this week, we it was very cool to see the release of uh, Fumihiko's uh, talk. He came all the way from Japan to be at Delphi this year. And his talk about how they care for ELWs in Japan is quite fascinating, quite unique. I think I would not have suspected that they were doing a lot of the things that they were doing. Mm-hmm. And they have published their outcomes uh, far and wide. And we know how good the outcomes are coming out of Japan. So it's very, very nice to get a glimpse into um, what they're doing. So the video is available for free. It's a 20-minute video. He has videos. He has pictures. So check it out on our uh, YouTube channel. Our YouTube channel is linked on our web on our webpage, and you go on go on YouTube, you type in the Incubator Podcast, and you should find us. And there's a lot of other cool talks. The one from the week before with Diana Montoya Williams is a mm-hmm. is a popular one as well um, about the cups of advocacy. So um, it's, we're very proud of the fact that our YouTube channel is. Uh, that's great content. Up, up and running. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. And it's got a lot of good stuff. Yeah, yeah. We're that's very exciting. And I'm glad that you made the finally made the announcement. We're so excited about the the conference and having people all together again. And, and it will be taking place in September because we know yes. there's boards. I think that's an important point. As I mentioned, yeah. we know there's boards. We don't want to disrupt. We want fellows and trainees to be able to attend. So September 23rd to the 25th in Miami, Florida, mm-hmm. uh, 2024. So there's time. It's about a year away. There's time. Uh, Lots of time to plan. We have a discounted price for trainees. So that's exciting also. And we've got other exciting opportunities. If the cost of the conference, Mm -hmm. as we've said for everything we do, we try to uh, make sure our initiatives are sustainable. But if for any reason, the cost of the conference is going to be what's preventing you from attending, then email us Mm -hmm. and we will gift you a ticket. Like, we won't pay for your plane ride or for, mm-hmm. for a hotel, obviously, because, I mean, we can't do that. But, like, just, like, seriously, like, it's not a problem. Um, yeah, we'll figure it out. Yeah. And most of us have CME money that we could use. So so that's exciting that you could just use that. Yeah. All right. Now okay. that the essays are done, let's get into it. <laughs> I guess I'm starting today. I have a paper that I wanted to review. It's a paper that came out in the Archives of Disease in Childhood. And it's something that I think a lot of us are speaking about. We spoke about this topic with Anoop uh, Katheria on the podcast. And the title of the paper is Exposure to Umbilical Cord Management Approaches and Death or Neurodevelopmental Impairment at 22 to 26 Months Corrected Age After Extremely Preterm Birth. First author is Sarah Henley. And um, this is coming from the uh, Neonatal Research Network. Um, This is a paper, obviously, that is um, very, um, it's, it's, um, it's obviously very timely because we're talking a lot about the different approaches to umbilical cord management. The, the, the paper has authors that are, again, it's a very star-studded lineup. Liz Foglia is on there. Michelle Walsh is on there. Satyan is on there. Christy Waterberg is on there. Sarah DeMauro is a senior author. So a very serious group of authors uh, publishing this paper. Um, the background um, is fairly straightforward, right? Babies born preterm are at a high risk of having neurodevelopmental impairment. Severe IVH is something that contributes to that outcome significantly. And delayed cord clamping is uh, thought to provide a protecting a protective option for these infants. Studies evaluating the relationship of delayed cord clamping, umbilical cord milking, and immediate cord clamping 
um, with a mixed finding, leaving a lot of questions about neuroprotection and neurodevelopment unanswered. So most studies examining umbilical cord management and neurodevelopmental outcomes usually are limited by several things, small sample size, single-centered cohorts with heterogeneous neurodevelopmental measurements um, and variable assessment time points. Now, the team at the Re Neonatal Research Network had a done a study about cord management in ELBW infants. And so for that reason, they felt um, compelled to run this study and try to compare the outcomes of death or severe neurodevelopmental impairment at two years corrected, between 22 and 26 months corrected age, after exposure to either immediate cord clamping, delayed cord clamping, or umbilical cord milking in infants that are born at less than 27 weeks of gestations. So far, so good. So um, for um, one second. Yeah, so I think if you are, if you are wondering about the paper that the NRN has published, I'm just trying to pull this up now from my database where um, it was published in the Journal of Pediatrics in 2021. Um, and I think it was called umbilical cord milking versus delayed cord clamping in association with in-hospital outcomes among extremely preterm infants. So obviously something um, that made the rounds at the time. Was the podcast even in existence by then? I don't remember. Probably not. It was like the the first month that we ever started the podcast. So we may not have had the opportunity to review it. Yeah, we, we couldn't review all the articles. <laughs> no, that's right. And so the study design is that this is a retrospective analysis. Now, the Neonatal Research Network follow-up database includes neurodevelopmental assessment of all eligible survivors born before 27 weeks of gestation at the time point between 22 and 26 months uh, corrected age. They included infants that were born either uh, between between 22 weeks to 26 and six, 26 weeks and six days um, at any NRN centers between 2016 and 2018. Now, for babies that were missing an exposure documentation, those with congenital malformation, congenital heart disease, genetic syndrome, um, those who um, received compassionate care at the time of birth, all these infants were excluded for the purpose of this study. And um, in terms of the infants that received neurodevelopmental assessment, they actually excluded babies who fell out of this four-month uh, window. So if they completed an assessment more than four months outside the target of 22 to 26 months, they excluded them. And I... <laughs> Made me chuckle because when you're doing your mental research, you never want to exclude anybody. Like if you have one, <laughs> you wanna, if you, if you got you. one, you want to use them. So I was like, oh man, every single one. It's it's but, such an endeavor to. I know. So kudos to them to keep the data yeah. super clean. Mm -hmm. um, they determined the exposure to cord management with either delayed, immediate, or milking. Basically, the primary outcome of the study was a composite of death before follow up or severe neurodevelopmental impairment at follow-up. Now, um, the follow-up included a standardized neurological exam with a Bailey 3, and the follow-up subcommittee defined severe impairment as the presence of any one of the following, severe CP, cerebral palsy, a Bailey 3 cognitive composite score of less than 70, a motor score of less than 70, bilateral blindness, or hearing impairment. They had a lot of secondary outcomes, which were basically each and every one of the primary outcome measures. So either death, severe NDI, moderate to severe CP, the different Bailey metrics, and bilateral blindness and hearing impairment. 
Now, what was interesting is that uh, the risk-adjusted association of core management technique with the primary composite outcome were estimated using a complete case analysis and multivariable logistic regression. And so the re- logistic regression that they used incorporated the following variables. Number one, the risk factors for death or severe uh, neurodevelopmental impairment identified um a priori, which means that some of the factors that we know are going to cause these, possibly increase the risk of NDI, these include gestational age, sex, race, ethnicity, maternal education, and antenatal steroids. Number two, they looked at covariates occurring prior to the exposure that were statistically imbalanced across the three exposure groups. So like if they had any baseline differences, knowing that this is a retrospective review. They looked also at birth year and this random, the NRN center as a random effect. Um, The last thing I want to mention about the methods, which is quite interesting, is that they created a pre-specified mediation analysis that examined whether severe IVH mediated the relationship between cord management and the primary outcome. So could it be that if you had a a delayed cord clamping and then had bad outcome later on, could that be mediated because you also had like a severe IVH? Um, So let's talk a little bit about the results. So, uh, 2,277 infants so um, were born between uh, the gestational age uh, of 22 weeks and 27 weeks, and they met inclusion criteria. And um, infants seen more than four months outside the target neurodevelopmental assessment window were excluded. That was 77 patients, and those with follow-up data was uh, were uh, that didn't have follow-up data who were deemed lost to follow-up. That was 300 patients. So the final cohort really includes 1,900 infants. Uh, 583 died before the assessment uh, at two years, and 1,317 had a complete neurodevelopmental assessment. Now, compared with, it's always interesting when you're doing neurodevelopmental study. Look at who are you not studying. So when they looked at their attrition rate, they found that compared with the infants in the analytic cohort, those that were lost to follow up were actually slightly older, had higher birth weight, higher abgars, and lower rate of severe brain injury. And so I think it's always interesting to see based on your center if you're losing the sick ones or you're losing the the non sick ones. And it looks like in this cohort they were losing the relatively healthy ones. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think which, which is not uncommon, right? Like if parents feel like their kid is doing 100%. well, they go to less appointments. 100%. Um, now, in terms of what was this, their exposure, so in the final cohort, um, 64%, so 1,218 infants, were exposed to immediate cord clamping. So that was most of the cohort. 528, which is about 27.8% were exposed to delayed cord clamping. And then 8.1%, 154 infants were exposed to umbilical cord milking. Now, there were some baseline characteristics that differed from the three groups. Babies who received immediate cord clamping were younger in terms of their gestational age. They were smaller. They were more likely to be uh, growth restricted. They were more likely to be born to a mother that had limited prenatal care. And they were actually less likely to have received antenatal steroids. And I think that usually makes sense because... Um, it's usually the ones who get immediate cord clamping are sort of the chaotic deliveries where nothing is planned and you're sort of finding yourself in a very tedious situation. So that's not really completely surprising, but it's an important baseline difference between the patients that needs to be highlighted. The primary outcome and the results of the primary outcome is that compared to immediate, to immediate cord clamping, delayed cord clamping exposed infants had significantly lower adjusted odds of death or severe NDI. in the delayed cord clamping versus 50% in the immediate cord clamping. So something that was 
quite significant. By the way, if I, I did fail to mention this, this is my bad. What is delayed cord clamping for the purpose of this study is anything above 30 seconds. So if you're doing 30 seconds or 32 seconds, you're good. This still applies to your, to your I was patient. Wait, I was waiting for you to define it for us. I'm so sorry. Given, given our recent discussions. I know. I hope Anup is not listening. Uh, <laughs> a statistically significant difference, however, was not observed in the primary outcome for the remaining two comparisons when they looked at uh, umbilical cord milking versus uh, immediate cord clamping or when they looked at delayed versus milking. Uh, remember, the number of babies who had uh, cord milking was quite small. Now, delayed cord clamping exposed infants had significantly lower adjusted odds of death prior to follow-up uh, compared with immediate cord clamping infants. So the rates of death before follow-up were 22% in the delayed cord clamping group versus 34% in the immediate uh, uh, cord clamping. There were no statistically significant differences in severe uh, neurodevelopmental impairment between the infants exposed to um, delayed versus immediate cord clamping. Um Again, that's right. What we talked about before was death or severe NDI. This is just looking at severe NDI. There were no differences in any of the secondary outcomes comparing umbilical cord milking to immediate cord clamping or delayed cord clamping. The last thing we want to talk about is this mediation analysis with severe IVH. That's something that I was quite eager to uh, to read. But compared with immediate cord clamping, delayed cord clamping directly reduced death or severe NDI with no indirect effect on the primary outcome via severe IVH with an average indirect effect of minus 0.009 and a p-value of 0.52. And there was no statistically significant direct or indirect effect that were found in the remaining comparison. So it doesn't look like, right? It's like delayed cord clamping impacts IVH, and maybe it's the IVH that impacts the neurodevelopment. But on this mediation analysis, which by the way, I hope nobody asks me any more question about what is a mediation analysis. But when I Googled it, I understand the concept. I would not be able to do it, but that's okay. Something else I was hoping you were going to define. Yeah, no, no. <laughs> but it is... um it is one of these things, right? It's To me, the way I think about this mediation analysis is the same way we think about surfactant and BPD. So it's like surfactant reduces the amount of RDS, but it doesn't impact BPD because surfactant doesn't have that effect. But if you're minimizing RDS, could you reduce BPD, right? It's that three-step. Um, the conclusion of the study is that it's a large con contemporary observational study of infants born before 27 weeks of gestation, and that um, delayed cord clamping was associated with improvement in the primary composite outcome of death or severe NDI at 22 to 26 months corrected age compared with immediate cord clamping. The protective effects of delayed cord clamping on death or severe NDI was not mediated by severe IVH. So that's great. <laughs> yeah, great. Okay. Good, good to know. Good to um, know. Any thoughts? I mean, the, the conversation continues is what I feel about this paper. <laughs> you know, I think we are getting, we are honing down on, on umbilical cord management. Yep. And I think Agreed. in the next handful of years that we'll, we'll have a much better understanding about what is the best route. Should we uh, proceed with our EBNEO commentary? Let's do it. All right. Let's cue the jingle. The Article of the Month Commentary, brought to you by the Evidence-Based Neonatology Team. Make sure to follow EBNEO on Twitter at EBNEO or on the web at EBNEO.org. 
So we have the pleasure of having on with us today, Dr. Nick Bamet from the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. Nick, how's it going today? It's going great. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, pleasure to have you on. I feel like it's been well overdue. So I'm glad that through the EBNEO, there'll be more opportunities. We have some things in mind. We'll talk to you about that afterwards. Well, but uh, <laughs> um, thank you uh, for uh, making the time. You're uh, here to present your commentary on the EBNEO article of the month. Um, this is an article that was uh, published in JAMA Network Open. And first author is Samuel Gentle from the University of Alabama. Um, and the title is heterogeneity of treatment effects of hydrocortisone by risk of bronchopulmonary dysplasia or death among extremely preterm infants in the National Institute of Child Health and Human Development Neonatal Research Network trial, a secondary analysis of a randomized, it's not over, a secondary analysis of a randomized clinical trial. So Nick, I think as we were discussing off air, I think maybe uh, you want to give us maybe a little bit of uh, context when it comes to uh, how did we even get to this paper? Yeah, I'd love to. Um so I had the pleasure of writing this EBNEO commentary together with um, one of my fellows, Tim Nellen. He was a chief resident at CHOP and is currently one of our third-year fellows. And so I'm leaning on the thoughtful and hard work that he did for this, and I want to acknowledge him up front. I love this paper. Um, I love this paper because it's about BPD. I love this paper because it's about medication exposures. Um, I love it because it's about heterogeneous treatment effects. Um, and also, this is a paper that is really best understood in the context um, of a rich history, really the 35-year-old saga of corticosteroids for neonatal lung disease. So I think we have to set the scene a little bit, okay? Um, and I'm going to make, I'm going to start with a couple of statements that I hope we can agree on. You can let me know if, if you don't agree. But statement number one, I think we can all agree that Inflammation plays a key role in the multifactorial pathogenesis of BPD. I agree. We can we can agree with that. And that corticosteroids are potent anti-inflammatory medications. In the late 1980s, right, in neonatology, we began to see trials that are showing that dexamethasone leads to respiratory benefits. And in the 1990s, use of postnatal dexamethasone starts to become widespread. And then the other shoe drops. Okay, research from the late 1990s, early 2000s that are evaluating long-term outcomes suggests that there is an increase in neurodevelopmental impairment, particularly with concerns for cerebral palsy. Uh, there's a couple of meta-analyses in the early 2000s that confirm this finding. And use of dexamethasone rather than rising now begins to drop. Stay with us. We'll be right back. This episode is proudly sponsored by Reckitt Mead Johnson. Reckitt Mead Johnson is dedicated to the research and development of nutrition products that help support baby development at every stage, including an extensive and female portfolio for premature and low birth weight infants. To learn more, visit hcp.meadjohnson.com. And, and to be to be fair, um, those studies and those practices used some pretty incredible doses of dexamethasone. Yes, some did. And, you know, those trials used, um, they're very variable, 
and the way that they used mm-hmm. these maps. Um, so in 2002, the AAP puts out a statement um, citing the findings of those meta-analyses and essentially suggesting to neonatal providers that we pump the brakes on postnatal corticosteroid use and use declines further. There's a really nice paper uh, first authored by Michelle Walsh. It's in pediatrics, I think, in 2006, that describes these changes in postnatal use using data from uh, both the NRN and Vaughn. Right? So, so here we are. And so the neonatal community is saying, well, shoot, you know, that's, that's a shame um, because it sure as hell seemed like this was helpful lung disease. Um, can we find a corticosteroid that seems to deliver the anti-inflammatory benefits um, without the neurodevelopmental harms? Um, and hydrocortisone is seen as a hopeful alternative based on a body of literature that I honestly don't know well enough to comment thoughtfully on. But, you know, among other things, there's animal models that um, suggest there's less harmful effects on the brain. Um, and the NRN hydrocortisone trial, which is the parent trial of this secondary analysis, is the largest trial to date. Um, on postnatal hydrocortisone. So uh, I know that this has been covered before, but um, you know, to briefly summarize this parent trial, and in fact, um, you know, we often try to, when we write up the BNO commentaries, we try to start with a peacock question. Um, and in this case, I actually think it's a lot easier to frame the peacock question for the parent trial and then to describe how this secondary analysis tweaks that. So the NRN hydrocortisone trial um, asks, uh, among 800 preterm infants born at less than 30 weeks gestation that are on mechanical ventilation between 14 and 28 postnatal days and have received mechanical ventilation for at least seven days leading up to that point, how does a tapering 10-day course of either IV or enteral hydrocortisone compared to placebo on the primary efficacy outcome of survival without moderate or severe BPD at 36 weeks postmenstrual age and the primary safety outcome of survival without moderate or severe neurodevelopmental impairment at two years. Okay. Um, And so the take-homes are that they did not notice um, a statistically significant difference between hydrocortisone and placebo on either. Um, there is a modest suggestion that um, there may be a small benefit for hydrocortisone on survival without moderate severe BPD. Um, 16.6% of the babies that receive hydrocortisone survive without this outcome uh, compared to 132 in the placebo group. Um, and then for the neurodevelopmental outcomes, they're more similar. Um, 36.9% that receive hydrocortisone have no, no moderate severe neuro- neurodevelopmental impairment or death in two years compared to 37.3 for the placebo. Okay. Um, so pivoting a bit to think about how this secondary analysis is a little bit different. Um, so Sam and colleagues ask, does the effect of hydrocortisone depend on 
the baseline risk of developing grade 2 or 3 BPD as estimated by the now updated and newly published NICHD BPD outcome estimator. Um, Another key difference between this paper and the parent trial is that in this study, the primary efficacy outcome swaps out BPD definitions. Okay. So here we're looking at death or grade two or three BPD as proposed by the 2019 um, Jensen definition, whereas the parent trial had used the 2001. Um, consensus definition of mild, moderate, severe BPD. Okay. Um, but another thing that I think it's important to describe is that this does it depend question, does it depend on the severity of lung disease, is also not coming out of thin air. Okay. Um, there's a history here too that makes it a very worthwhile question, right? So, um, in the mid-2000s, as most of the neonatal community is curbing their dexamethasone use, Lex Doyle and colleagues published the original version of their meta-regression on pediatrics, right? And so in short, they say, all right, so it seems like postnatal corticosteroids are good for lung disease, but bad for the brain. But we know that lung disease isn't good for the brain either. Possible that this harm, and in this case, uh, the harm is being ascertained as an outcome of death or cerebral palsy, depends on the severity of lung disease in the population being treated, right? And so they gathered data from a bunch of randomized controlled trials of systemic postnatal corticosteroids. Um, and almost all of these looked at dexamethasone specifically. And they ask, well, is there an association between the rate of chronic lung disease in the control group of each trial and the effect on death or cerebral palsy? And they conclude yes. Uh, they say when the risk of CLD is low, uh, there's an increased risk of death or cerebral palsy, but when the risk is high, um, there is a decreased risk of death or cerebral palsy. So this is the paper that includes this now famous figure with the circles of varying sizes and, you know, this down-sloping line with the confidence intervals. Um, and I would say that, you know, this paper has influenced clinical practice. So I remember when I was a trainee and we were caring for infants that had evolving BPD, um, we would navigate online our way to the prior version of the NRN BPD outcome estimator, and we would plug in the clinical characteristics of the infant that we were caring for to estimate the probability of death of BPD, right? And then with these estimates in hand, we would circle back to our attending to talk about whether or not we felt it was worth initiating a course of uh, dexamethasone, right? So an influential um, paper for sure. I think you're. I think I'm just gonna maybe hammer in that point that we're, we're through this historical context. We we get. I mean, basically, it's this <clears throat> baseline risk uh, assessment 
is really something that helps us figure out as a field in general that maybe blanket prophylaxis for everyone is not the way to go and that we should assess the risk of each patient individually to then determine if the benefits of the medication are there compared yeah. to, to risk. And I think, I think that's, that's both a, it's a, it's a shift on so many levels for our field that, yeah, I think, I think this is, this was great that you, you went over that. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. All right. So, so in this paper, what, um, what gentle and colleagues are saying is they're saying, okay, you know, so based on these meta regressions, um, we believe that the effect of dexamethasone on death or CP likely depends on the degree of underlying lung disease. So let's probe whether the effect of hydrocortisone seems to also depend on the degree of underlying lung disease as measured by the predicted risk of developing grade 2 or 3 BPD based on clinical characteristics available at 14 days of life. All right, so, so what do they do? So for each of these 800 infants, they estimate this predicted risk by inputting gestational age, birth weight, infant sex, ventilator mode, surgical neck, and FiO2, right? And so the calculator or the model um, spits out a predicted risk for each of these infants. And on the basis of this, they divide the 800 infants into four buckets containing 200 infants each. Risk quartile one, risk quartile two, three, four. So risk quartile one contains the 200 infants from the trial with the lowest risk of grade two or three BPD uh, or death, I should say. And quartile four contains the 200 infants with the highest risk of grade two or three BPD or death. All right. And then with these quartiles or buckets in place, they ask, do the efficacy and safety outcomes depend on which quartile the infant is right and so in other words they're asking is there evidence of effect modification by predicted risk uh as measured by the presence of a statistically significant interaction uh and the long and the short of it is no there is no appreciable okay and i think that's the word here there is no appreciable evidence of effect modification uh, for either the efficacy or the safety outcome. I think you did a great job of of giving us the backstory um, and and reviewing um, the trial. And you know, to be clear, in at any of the quartile levels, none of them showed statistical significance. So. Um, that was a little bit of a bummer, I think I, I have to say for myself. The whole, I mean, we've been we've been watching the saga develop throughout our training, right? It's, you know, and um, as early uh, attendings, and we keep hoping, I think, that something will show us that that it will be helpful in this uh, group of babies. Um, I think the paper did a good job discussing. Um, some of the strengths and limitations. Um, I didn't know if you wanted to talk about any of those. So, so let's jump on one that very much relates to kind of what you just commented on, right? That, that it is a bummer, right? Um, but I would say that perhaps it's not an unexpected bummer. Right. And one of the things that I'm getting at with that comment is that the parent trial was not powered for this question. 
not meant for this question, right? Um, in general, you know, we we as a neonatal community really struggle to um, conduct neonatal trials that are large enough to detect minimally important sites uh, because it just requires an awful lot of babies. They're hard to do. Um, but in general, when you are designing a trial and one of your objectives or your main objective is to show effect modification, you need a substantially larger sample size. Uh, and so those are really, really difficult to do. And you could argue that even the parent trial may have been um, you know, underpowered and was hoping for a relatively large effect size um, in its design. So you know, when you dig into the numbers a little bit, um, you, you can begin to question whether or not maybe there is a signal there. Right? So um, if you look at at quartile one. The quartile one is the one with the risk between 18 and 45%. Yep. The lowest yeah. risk. And I think, so my point that I'm trying to make, I think is best appreciated if you look at table two. All right. So if you look at the top of table two, you can see that um, for quartile one, all right, infants that are exposed to hydrocortisone seem to have uh, an absolute risk difference of 5% more death uh, or high-grade BPD, grade 2 or 3 BPD. Whereas you, if you look at quartile 4, um, the hydrocortisone group seems to have 5% less death of BPD, right? And so I think if, if we leave the very substantial statistical uncertainty that exists here alone for a second, and I'm not saying we should do that, but if we leave that alone for a second and we just look at those effect estimates, you can ask yourself, huh, you know, maybe there is a signal there. And if this was a trial of not 800 events, but uh, rather 8,000 events, then maybe we would see statistically significant effect modification. Right. To your point, I think they did a beautiful and eloquent job in the figures, actually. So figure 1A obviously shows that the babies who are at the highest risk did, in fact, end up having uh, the most uh, adverse outcomes. And, and when you contrast the, the slope there uh, to, to figure 1C, which was the risk reduction, um, it's basically an, an inverse relationship. Um, so that, you know, they had the greatest risk reduction. So, that, I mean, definitely there's a trend there. And so, and so to that point, I guess I, I'm curious to hear your comment on the fact that, as we said in the beginning, right, we're trying to look at whether the baseline risk really makes a difference in the uh, treatment effect mm -hmm. of hydrocortisone. But then looking back at the, even the parent trial, these were babies that were pretty much all at very high risk. They were mm -hmm. all very sick patients. Yeah, right. And so do you think that if they had a more homogeneous population with a, with a few babies maybe even enrolled earlier on that were on less uh, support, maybe we could have had a more homogeneous spread of the baseline risk and maybe we would have seen a signal that would be stronger? Yeah. And not, yeah, I think it's... Um, so absolutely, I think that's a great point. And, and, um, and Daphne, absolutely, right? You look, at, you look at figure 1C, that's not a straight line. 
you know, like right. <laughs> a little bit. It wants to curve. It wants to do the little. <laughs> Probably not the first hill that I would choose to go sledding down, but you know, <laughs> there's uh there's something there um that that could definitely catches your eye. Um, and, and Ben, your point, I think you know, um, I do think that the authors did a really wonderful job of uh of calling out the limitations of their study. Right, is another one that they called out. Um. But, you know, absolutely, if you just, you know, if you, if you just stop and think about who were the babies that were um, enrolled in parent trial, yeah. like, these are babies that were still on event between 14 and 28 days and had been on event for at least seven days. Um, you know, if you look back at, um, if you look back at the results of the parent trial, um, I don't have it in front of me, but if you look at the rates of Yeah, it's like 16%. Yes, they did, right? Yeah. yeah. You know? I mean, 16, 16 or 13% was survival without yeah. moderate or severe BPD. So like rates of BPD were like in the, in the 80-something 80, 80, 80 yeah. percent. Right. So their quartiles don't necessarily represent our, our entire NICU population, right? Or the at-risk population, I'd say. Um, yeah. And so, you know, I, I think it, an important message for this paper, and it's all papers really, and it's something that we're frequently guilty of is that we love to extrapolate data from a from our study to other populations or broader populations um, to whom that those data don't necessarily apply. Right. Um, and so, yes, you know, I think that, I think you should not look at this data and assume that there would be a lack of effect modification. If you were looking for an interaction in a population that was more heterogeneous and had mm -hmm. infants that were at very, very low risk of um, developing death of BPD uh, and perhaps some infants at, at higher risk, although there was, I say that this, uh, this cohort was enriched in infants that were at very high risk. Um, mm -hmm. I think another, another thing to that point is if you look at, um, Ben, you referred to that, this table one, right when we first yeah. started to look at this, rolling my paper to try to find it um did i refer to table one sure yeah, yeah. yeah. table one um uh, yeah i think you did i think you did yeah yeah, yeah. I'm, i'm happy doing that uh <laughs> if you look at right so they took these 800 kids and they put them into four buckets 100 mm -hmm. each right and they describe the estimated risk of grade two three bpd or deaths in each of those quartiles and you can you can get the sense that this population is a bunchy group right so risk quartile one ranges from 18 to 45 that's a pretty good spread for risk quartile one you look at risk quartile two it's a pretty tight spread from 46 mm -hmm. to 53 which isn't that different from quartile three at 54 to 65 and then quartile four 66 to 84 you know there's a little bit more spread there so Oh, really? It's barely, barely, barely 10%, uh, 10 percentage points. And, and the quartile one really includes like almost 20%. Yeah, right. So 20, more than 20%. It's really quartile one and quartile four that, that are the most distinct. Quartiles yeah. two and three are awfully similar to each other. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, and, and it speaks to this limitation that um, this is a specific population that had, all of them had fairly significant lung disease, which is what was required to make them eligible and relevant to mm -hmm. what's interesting to me about this is that I, i'm i like when when we are conducting 
trials that are kind of similar in the idea of what they're trying to test across different institutions, different countries. And so to me, I, I look at this and I cannot not think of the Premilog trial, right, where um, they also used hydrocortisone and, and they are showing and they are showing a benefits. Uh, they are showing a benefit. And one of the big criticism of the Premilog trial was that the rates of BPD were quite high, but still they were less than, than in, in this parent trial. But- and it's funny that very recently they did the same kind of analysis not using using sort of a modified BPD calculator. They didn't use the NRN one, but they're looking at the same thing and they are seeing a bit of a signal. So I think what's super interesting about this whole commentary that we're having now is that you may be tempted to think by reading this current paper, maybe even the parent paper, that it's all done for hydrocortisone and we're probably not going to need to revisit this. But it, it may not be. It may not be. That if was going to be my question today. Oh, go ahead. <laughs> No, just that. And we posed this question to Dr. Waterberg and we said, are we done studying uh, postnatal steroids? But it it seems like the answer is still probably no. Oh, I think we're, we're getting there. We're refining it. (laughs) He gave you a no way. That was a no way. (laughs) You know, I mean, the thing, the thing with steroids, what makes them, what makes them compelling, what makes this hard is that we all know in our hearts of hearts, based on our own clinical experience, that, they work in some instances. Yes, they work. Def- some kids definitely respond. No. Yeah. I-, I wonder too if, if um, as we're in this era of individualized, personalized medicine, maybe it's something else about the patient and not their risk. You know that that pre- predisposes them to to uh, be successful on a certain medication. I think as we're starting to do this, uh, you want to discriminate between you want to discriminate between the steroid responders and the steroid non-responders. That's exactly right. Yeah. That's exactly right. So, the, what's different about those two groups? Um, and work our way backwards, I guess. Yeah, and really, you know, I mean, you're highlighting the reality that that clinical medicine is nuanced, right? And like we all have mm-hmm. this goal of of personalized individualized medicine. Um, and I think, I think to me, what's really interesting about heterogeneity of treatment effects from a clinical research standpoint is that it's an effort to bridge evidence-based clinical practice and, you know, that aspiration of individualized medicine by acknowledging in the same way that, you know, we know to be true in clinical medicine, that things are nuanced, that, you know, from a research perspective, you know, the devil's in the details and, and things are also 100% nuanced. You know, you described the Permalog trial, Ben. Um, yeah, you know, same same general preterm population, same drug, but the intervention is done at a completely different time. And in a lot of ways yeah. in populations that are very, very different, we're talking about prophylaxis mm-hmm. and babies at risk um, for adrenal insufficiency versus babies that... You know, seem to be a very high risk of developing lung disease because, you know, they're two to four weeks out and they're still requiring a certain amount of support. And so, you know, extrapolating the results of early hydrocortisone to decisions about late hydrocortisone is, is inappropriate. Yeah. Um, but you know, it's it's hard to um, to generate good evidence for all of those distinct, nuanced differences um, in the decisions that we're making with clinical medicine and that we should. Yeah, because because I think the NICU has evolved tremendously as well, right? We, we, our babies survive, number one. Our babies have, there's a, 
a wide variety of patients where it used to be, oh, the preemies of the NICU, but now a 20 to 24 weeker is very different from a 28 weeker. And, and then the late uh, preterms are a different population. And so we end up having this really multifaceted population. Mm-hmm. And so I think um, it's, that's, that's, that was my point originally with that. I think it's very good that we're studying uh, the same kind of medication in various trials, trying to, to get to circle the question at the very least, and maybe, glimpse at an answer it almost like this picture of the black hole right it's like you you don't really see anything but it's the surrounding that maybe gives you an idea of where it is and and where the truth lies and i think um yeah i think it's um it's a super it's super interesting intellectual endeavor for sure absolutely nick thank you so much for making the time to be with us this was phenomenal and um yeah we look forward to uh chatting with you again soon thank you i do as well thanks this episode is also proudly sponsored by Reckitt Meat Johnson. Reckitt Meat Johnson is dedicated to the research and development of nutrition products that help support baby development at every stage, including an extensive and female portfolio for premature and low birth weight infants. Learn more at hcp.meatjohnson.com. That was great. We're very thankful for the um, collaboration that we have with the EBNEO team. It is a... Um, robust group of people that is always providing very uh, insightful uh, comments about some of these articles. And it always gives us the opportunity to revisit some of these articles that's that, we, right. that we briefly mentioned on the podcast. So that's really That's great. what I was going to say. Uh, m- m- very commonly, we've already reviewed the article, but it's nice to revisit it and have somebody else's perspective. I think in the book, make it stick about like how to memorize Mm. things, always asking Mm -hmm. about like revisiting something. So Mm -hmm. that to me is great. And the, the historical context that Nick gave about the use of steroids in neonatology is priceless. So thank you Nick for doing that. Very helpful. All right, uh, Daphne, what are you looking at today? Okay. Well, we knew this was going to be an interesting journal club on like hot topics. So I wanted to introduce two different things. The first is this um, survey by our friends at the CHNC. Uh, we're very excited that we'll be going to the CHNC conference. We've got some uh, an interview about the CHNC to come out shortly. Um, <clears throat> but this was a brief communication in the Journal of, Journal of Perinatology, Current State of Renal Mears Monitoring in the NICU Results from a CHNC Survey, um, lead author Matthew Hare, and this is um, again the Children's Hospital Neonatal Consortium, but specifically they had the kidney and urology focus group, and that's one of the things we talked about with our um, upcoming interview regarding the CHNC. Is that they have all of these focus groups um, for units to get involved in if they're working on any one particular thing. But I thought this was interesting. Uh, it's it's a topic of discussion in our own unit about using NEARS uh, monitoring um, or near infrared spectroscopy um, and monitoring of regional tissue oxygenation. And I'm pretty familiar with NEARS. I used it a lot for cerebral oxygenation, um, but they were interested in looking specifically at renal NEARS, which is something that our team is doing. So that drew my attention. Um, they had a 22-question survey, and they really just wanted to give an indication of what the community was doing. They had a 75% completion rate, so 34 out of their total 45 sites responded. And I was surprised to see that 77% are using renal mirrors. I thought that was a lot. Don't you think? 
Yes, it made me. Yes, I'm so sorry. I was muted. Um, yeah, 77%. I mean, we just started uh, using Nears routinely in our unit. Uh, so, um, and I feel like we're pretty innovative. We're pretty quick to adopt new things in yeah. our in our group. So, 77% made me feel less excited about how cool we were. <laughs> That's right, and and I think the rest kind of is pretty familiar with the rest of the community. So um, some of them are using it exclusively for clinical purposes, about 46%. Um, and then in the other 54, they're using it for both clinical and research, which makes sense because I think we still have a lot to learn about NEARS. The most common indications were ECMO, uh, congenital diaphragmatic hernia, um, congenital heart disease, and HIE. Um, and interestingly, very few units were using uh, renal nears in the preterm infant, even though that's probably the most common thing being studied right now is how can we use nears um, to manage uh, the, the ELBW. Renal oxygenation is discussed on rounds at 73% of sites. So that's almost everybody. But interestingly, only five sites had a protocol or guideline to say what you should do with the information that you down on uh, your renal mirrors um, trends. And the limitations, not surprisingly, that were discussed are that they're unclear normative values and it was unclear what to do about the values even once you got them. So I just thought this was interesting because I think it represents what's happening in our unit. We want to use renal mirrors. We're hopeful that they will be valuable. Um, and we still don't have a really good idea about how to change our management based on uh, NEARS. So uh, that's a hot topic. I wanted to make sure to bring that up and uh, give a shout out to our friends at the CHNC. And then I definitely wanted to draw people's attention um, to this um, entire issue of clinics in perinatology on neonatal nutrition. It's entitled Neonatal Nutrition, Evidence-Based Recommendations for Common Conundrums. Um, mm. And it's a, like you said, this this week is a star-studded lineup. Um, the foreword is by Lucky Jane. He gives a, a humorous um, foreword to the entire issue. Um, the preface and the editors um, are uh, Dr. Point Dexter and Dr. Hare. And so you know that they got experts in the field. And then they have a amazing articles. So I'll just run the list so you know what to look for. Early fluid and nutritional management of extremely preterm newborns during the fetal to neonatal transition. Administering parental nutrition in the neonatal intensive care unit, logistics, existing challenges, and a few conundrums. There's parental nutrition in the neonatal intensive care unit, intravenous lipid emulsions. Calcium and phosphorus, all you need to know but we're afraid to ask. The practice of enteral nutrition, clinical evidence for feeding protocols, human milk fortification for very preterm infants toward optimal nutrient delivery, neonatal intensive care unit growth and long-term outcomes, human milk fortification strategies in the neonatal intensive care unit, um, nutrition management of high-risk neonates after discharge, red blood cell transfusion, anemia, feeding, and the risk of neck. Current practices, challenges, and recommendations in enteral nutrition after neck. Nutrition for infants with congenital heart disease. And then there's a commentary on special population surgical infants. Controversies and conundrums in newborn feeding. The role of the registered dietitian, nutritionist, past, present, and future. 
So it's a basically all you need to know about nutrition in the in the NICU. What have we done? Where is the current state? And what still needs to be done? I wish I had the time to review all of the articles, but I definitely wanted people to to know that that was out there and to take a look. Yeah, and it's a great compliment to the discussion that we had with Amy and yeah. Misty, um about some of these conundrums because we asked them a lot of these th- questions. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so it was great to see uh, that paper come out. And I think if you wanted to make a conference about nutrition, <laughs> those would be the topics you would want to see, and the that would be the lineup of people you would want to hear from. So, yep. definitely take a look. Um. I think what we should do next is talk about this paper called Treatment of Seizures in the Neonate Guidelines mm-hmm. and Consensus-Based Recommendations, Special Report from the ILAE Task Force on Neonatal Seizure mm-hmm. Seizures. This is a paper that definitely will uh, fly by most of us because it's published in Epilepsia. It's something that That's we do right. not, something that we talk about at the incubator very frequently, that a lot of very impactful papers are published in journals that we don't follow routinely. And this is a paper that is written for neonatologists. It has a star-studded lineup. Terry Ender is a co-author. Rene Shalhas is one of them. We have Linda DeVries. Um, so it's, I mean, I could go down the list um, of all these authors. There's, there's, it's, it's very Neonatal cool neuro rock stars. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and so um, we're very excited to uh, bring on Rene Shalhas to talk about this paper with us and talk a little bit about the impact uh, that it has. So uh, without further ado, please welcome to the show, Dr. Rene Shalhas. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. It's an honor to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Thank you. You you are a uh, professor of neurology at Washington University in St. Louis School of Medicine, and uh, you are one of the authors of the recently published special report in Epilepsia, a journal that as neonatologists, we don't consult uh, very often, but um, on a very important paper called Treatment of Seizures in the Neonate Guidelines and and Consensus-Based Recommendations, special report from the ILAE Task Force on neonatal seizures. So first of all, congratulations on being part of uh, this effort. And I guess I wanted to maybe ask you for people who are driving in their car who have maybe not even aware that this paper came out, can you bring us up to speed as to what this paper is and uh, what it intends to do and what are some of the takeaway points of the of the article? Absolutely. Thank you. So the first thing is that this paper is a guideline that's coming from the International League Against Epilepsy. And the paper was uh, spearheaded by two phenomenal uh, epileptologists, Ronit Pressler and Hans Hartmann. So lots of credit to them. I am a co-author on this. Uh, but it took a big team of uh, multidisciplinary contributors from all over the world to bring this together. Uh, we've been and, working I mean, on it for... You're, you're yeah. very humble, but... Uh, Linda DeVries is also a co-author. Absolutely. Terry Ender is also Absolutely. a co-author. So this I feel is... like there's no uh, there's no ranking. Everybody is pretty it's a star-studded lineup. <laughs> it's a, it's an important lineup uh, and and these individuals all put a lot of work into this over the last 5 or 6 years. Um this is a really in my view as somebody who's really interested in neonatal seizures. This is a really important step forward for the field. This is a very carefully done systematic review of literature on neonatal seizure treatment uh, and where there was insufficient uh, literature and not enough data to make a recommendation, this was an expert um, Delphi process in order to come up Mm -hmm. with recommendations that make sense, um, not just in the very high resource uh, locations, but also other less resource institutions around the world. So, I think this is going to set a new standard for us. 
that was very satisfying because so many of these papers on this topic specifically are suffering from the lack of evidence. And sometimes you end up with a question left unanswered and you're like, oh, I wish there was an answer. But here, I think thanks to the design and thanks to the Delphi consensus statements, when evidence was lacking, you still had a recommendation coming from a panel that was actually very well composed. We'll talk about that in a second. But um, you were able to address every single question that you guys had set out to do. Yes. That was the idea. Yeah. Make this as practical and useful as possible. And so how many questions? Um, so so obviously it's a system, it's a st- systematic review mm-hmm. that aims to answer a very specific number of questions, uh, which I think we're all asking ourselves when managing uh, patients' neonates with uh, seizures. So can you can you walk us through a little bit what some of these questions are? And maybe we can talk afterwards about some of the actual recommendations mm-hmm. so that we can then okay. have a, a proper conversation okay. about those. Absolutely. So this panel came up with six uh, PICO questions. So PICO, patient population, intervention or issue, comparison, and outcome of interest. Mm-hmm. The six were, what should we use as the first-line anti-seizure medicine? What should we use when the first doesn't work? So the second-line anti-seizure medicine. When should we stop the medication? Is there an effect on seizure burden of therapeutic hypothermia? How does treatment of electrographic or EEG-defined seizures associate with outcome? And when and how should we use pyridoxine or pyridoxal 5-phosphate for infants mm-hmm. who have So those are the six questions that um, as the main question. Then there were a couple of additional ones, one about um, standardized treatment protocols at, a, at an individual institution level, and a second about communication. And so... Um, Based on the based on the literature review um, and the consensus um, of the of the of the panel, what were some of the? Uh, can can you walk us through the answers to each one of these questions? Obviously, we're not doing a paper just as each of these questions does have an attached recommendation, which we'll go over, but also goes over how that recommendation was was uh, how 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 the how the group arrived at this recommendation and that i think is a very valuable especially if you're a trainee understanding how we make recommendations for practice guidelines but obviously this may be going beyond the scope of this podcast but can you walk us through some of these recommendations uh, to these six questions sure thing so first thing is um the first question is what what is the first line out of the gate medicine that we use for neonatal seizures uh and the answer is phenobarbital so all of the evidence that we have points to phenobarbital being uh, the most likely to control the seizures as the first-line medicine. Um, that has been true um, over a lot of time. It's been true um, in practice worldwide, um, and it really hasn't changed. But the truth is the data that we have say phenobarbital is the first line for almost every baby with neonatal seizures. The one exception is that there are rare infants where they have a familial and inherited neonatal epilepsy syndrome caused by a specific channelopathy. You can get an idea from family history and clinical features. Um, and for those babies, were you really sure that that's what they have? There are some instances where you could use a different. For the most part, um, phenobarbital. I'm not at this point. I have some questions about that. Absolutely. But, uh, I'll yeah. let you, I'll let you. And by the way, before we even move on, <laughs> I think it's important to clarify, we're not talking full term, we're not talking preemies, we're talking neonates. We're talking preemies, we're talking full term, any any neonate who is less than uh, 48 weeks post age. 
right? I think some will some will use forty four weeks, but we're getting into semantics there. But, but I mean, anybody depending on the age. Yeah, yeah, because we're talking about uh, first-line agents, including patients with HIE. Yes. And I think some people say, oh, are they then talking about lethal them? No, we're talking about the whole spectrum, and I think that's also very important. And so yeah. the, the second question uh-huh. that was addressed um, in the in the paper okay. was, uh, what about uh, second-line agent? Uh-huh. Uh, what is what is the recommendation? Yeah, so the second line, uh, so the recommendation about second line is that um, phenytoin, levetiracetam, Midazolam or lidocaine uh, could be used as second line for most etiology. Um, if the child has a congenital heart disease and there's concern about arrhythmia, then mm-hmm. of those, levetiracetam might be a preferable agent um, above phenytoin or lidocaine. Uh, if the child has a suspected uh, neonatal Epilepsy caused by a channelopathy, then a sodium channel blocker like carbamazepine or phenytoin would be considered. Uh, but we have far fewer data on the first line of phenobarbital. That's the that's the answer that we have for the that second question. The third question that we looked at was when to stop the anti seizure medicine, and um. In practice, there's been wide variation on this. Um, turned out that given the time frame of when the papers needed to be published, there weren't any um, large studies to include when we did the systematic review. However, during the time that we were doing our work, uh, another paper came out. Um, in full disclosure, I'm the senior author on that paper. So um, I, I may be a little bit biased, but I think it's important work. And in fact, having that paper come out um, allowed for the group to have a consensus delf. Um, and so the recommendation uh, is that following cessation of acute symptomatic seizures, whether they be electrographic or electroclinical, um, without evidence for neonatal epilepsy, anti-seizure medicines can be, discharge, uh, can be discontinued prior to discharge to home, regardless of MRI or EEG. So what does that mean? The first means that We've decided that we are confident the baby has acute provoked neonatal seizures and does not have neonatal onset epilepsy. That the seizures have come under control, um, at least for 24 hours. Many of us will wait a little bit longer than that. Um, and that, you know, overall the baby is looking like they're getting better, right? Their trajectory is improving. Uh, that the, the anti-seizure medicine can, can be stopped, not switched to a different medicine, not tapered down to something something else but stopped before the baby goes home. Um, and that's based um, in part on this study um, where the first author is Hannah Glass from UCSF. And this is based on a, a study that we did with the neonatal seizure registry. I think that's a huge uh, point because I, I think the, what you're saying is important. <laughs> it's that it, it doesn't mean that it definitely needs to be stopped. But if the parameters are met where it is safe to do so, then we shouldn't have the neonatologist reflex of saying, well, we got to this point, just just don't touch anything and just let them go home and somebody else will deal with this. That is not the right approach. Um, right. Um, the neonatologist approach there is, do we have confidence? Does this family know what to do and who to call mm-hmm. should they have a concern? Um, do they have follow-up with a child neurologist and a pediatrician, right? Um, so we're not letting them go off and nobody's ever going to see this child again. But what the data show that staying on an anti-seizure medicine um, 
does not prevent the child from developing epilepsy in infancy. Mm-hmm. Um, in the in the study that we did with the neonatal seizure registry, this was a, an observational comparative effect of the study. A lot of statistical gymnastics to get at um, causal inference. And what we found was the babies who developed epilepsy early on, within four months, they all went home on anti-seizure medicine. So that medicine didn't prevent them from developing epilepsy. Um, additionally, many of the babies who did develop epilepsy uh, developed infantile spasm, which is a very specific kind of epilepsy, and it requires specific treatments. And none of those treatments are treatments that we would send a baby home from the NICU. Hmm. So they wouldn't, it wouldn't work for that kind of epilepsy. Um, and the median time of onset to epilepsy, you know, unprovoked seizures in the infant period, was seven months, uh, which was longer than most infants were maintained on the medicine. They did go home. So those rationales, as far as I want to prevent the onset of epilepsy or I want to put off unprovoked seizures, didn't hold. And staying on a medicine does not prolong the, the chance of or doesn't change the chance of, of developing epilepsy, doesn't make the epilepsy happen later. Um, and the medicines that we would go home on, most often phenobarbital, do not treat the most common of epilepsy. Um, next thing is about development. And we yeah, found, that was, that was a big right, one. there was no difference in neurodevelopmental outcomes if the baby went home on or Third thing was to ask parents, when it, what is acceptable to you? Uh, and, you know, we could have seen parents say, you know, I want to stay on medicine because I want to feel like I'm doing something. Could have seen parents say, I don't want to stay on medicine because it reminds me of this really difficult mm-hmm. time that we had. Turned out in our data from the neonatal seizure registry that one of the factors that that was associated with better parent well-being was going home off. And so the preponderance of evidence really suggests that we should be sending children home off of medicine with appropriate follow-up with their pediatrician and child neurologist. And that's another important point that um, part of the consensus-based recommendation included parents. That's huge. I mean, I was when I was reading the paper, I was not expecting to see that. I was expecting a panel of experts and um, I think... I think this was this was very innovative of you guys to include families in, into the discussion. So I think that's also something that people should know about as they read these recommendations was that um, parents were involved in the in the recommendation when it came to uh, obviously the evidence based recommendation is evidence based recommendation is whatever the, the literature says. But these consensus based recommendations are actually uh, including parents, which I think is really cool. And then um, in terms of um, the, do you want to go over quickly over the last few recommendations? Sure thing. So that, yeah. Yeah. So we can do that. So uh, the question about the effect of therapeutic hypothermia on seizure burden, um, there are several um, studies that, that document that therapeutic hypothermia may reduce seizure burden in, um, with hypoxic ischemic encephalopathy. Um, however, None of us would recommend using only cooling to try to, to treat seizures, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, we still know that about half of babies who have mild to moderate, sorry, moderate to severe HIE uh, have EEG confirmed seizures. And we want to treat those just like we would treat any other baby who has neonatal seizures for a sign. So that was the next one. Um, is decreasing seizure burden associated with better seizure outcomes? This Pico 
Um, this turns out to be a very difficult question to answer with a trial. There are a couple of randomized control trials that have looked at this. They have all been underpowered because it is difficult to recruit to this kind of trial study design. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this went to a Delphi consensus um, and the consensus-based recommendation saying that treating the seizures um, to achieve a lower seizure burden may be associated with improved neurodevelopment and reduction of subsequent epilepsy. And the last of these big six PICO questions was about the use of pyridoxine or pyridoxal And the idea here is that there are very rare neonatal onset epilepsies don't respond to anti uh, and so that a trial of pyridoxine should be attempted for a baby who's presenting um, with clinical or EEG features suggestive of uh, vitamin B6 dependent epilepsy uh, and who have not responded to anti-seizure medicine uh, or to babies who have seizures that are unresponsive to, to a trial of two usual dosed anti-seizure medicine and who don't have an identified. Uh, so that was... Um, a very uh, clear consensus among mm-hmm. um, And those last two recommendations, one is about um, developing a standardized treatment pathway for management of neonatal seizures in your local unit. Um, and within the manuscript that you're referring to, there is a proposed treatment pathway that folks can take a look at um, and modify as appropriate for their The idea here is that for a high-stakes, uh, low-frequency uh, problem like neonatal seizure, because an emergency, um, you don't want to be trying to, to recreate the wheel at 3 a.m., right? Uh, that if everybody knows what medicines are available and why ICU, what can I get quickly? How do I get them to the bedside? Uh, then we can treat efficiently. And we can measure quality and do some quality improvement um, studies if need be uh, and really get the whole team on board to to efficiently and effectively treat babies with neonatal seizures. Uh, so that's a that was a strong this um, among the best. I think what's very interesting about this is that in the background section of the paper, you mentioned obviously, and you've mentioned this uh, earlier in our chat about the fact that there's a lot of variability in how we approach seizures, and for some of these recommendations, looking at um, sometimes in in these. Uh, very nicely done boxes. We have the evidence-based recommendation and we have the consensus-based recommendation. I was was actually interesting to see that the strength of the recommendation is always maybe moderate or sometimes even weak. But when it comes to the consensus agreement, it's always moderate to high. I thought there was a, 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 there was truly a consensus among um, the experts that were at the table. And I was honestly expecting to see maybe a bit more dissonance when it comes to, since there is so much variability, I was expecting these uh, Delphi consensus to be maybe uh, a potluck of different opinions. And I was not expecting to see such a high consensus. What what do you make of that? Yeah, it's a really good question. So your point is that the the grade level assessment of the literature mm-hmm. uh, was not often very high, right? There, there right. are certainly holes in our methods and, and there's Plenty of scope for really good research. In. Having reviewed together in great detail the state of the literature and spoken with one another, you know, over the course of years about what is our clinical experience and practice. Um, yeah, I think you're right. It is interesting to note that these experts from across the world really all came to very similar conclusions about the best way, given the current state of the art, 
the best way to approach treatment with seizures. Um, and there was not a lot of disagreement. Uh, it's that, true. And we were, we're honest in the paper about where people had some disagreement based, you know, based on their, their own opinions and, and the available evidence. But, but for the most part, people really did, did agree. I think many people are going to ask you about, many people are probably wondering about phenobarbital and, uh-huh. and uh, the fact that as a first-line agent, it comes back still yet as as the first-line option. And there's been a lot of research in in the use of uh, anti-seizure medications. And yet here we are with phenobarb yet again. What is it about phenobarb that uh, seems to always put it at the forefront of seizure management in the neonate? Is it something that makes phenobarb truly effective or is it just a default that really we haven't been able to uh, to beat? Yeah, it's a really good question. None of us really love phenobarbital, right? That's right. Um, <laughs> and but but that doesn't mean that we can't that we can't or shouldn't use it. And the truth okay. is that the data show that compared to um, most recently compared with levetiracetam, uh, phenobarbital mm-hmm. is far superior. And so it is it's the best drug that we currently have, and that we have evidence. The concerns with phenobarbital really come in with prolonged exposure in a famous study with children with febrile seizures who were treated with phenobarbital and had measurable differences in IQ. We're not talking about prolonged exposure for most babies now because we have data to say we can we can use phenobarbital for a few days and then stop it. And what we're what we're talking about is trying to treat those seizures as an emergency, make them stop, um, and then stop the medicine when they don't need it anymore. And for most babies, right. it's just a few days. I think really important to highlight the Neolev 2 trial. Yeah. C.S. Sharp was the first author. This is a beautifully conducted trial. It was really aimed to see could levetiracetam take that first place slot. And so that it was a randomized controlled trial of levetiracetam versus phenobarbital as first-line treatment for EEG-confirmed neonatal seizures. They treated very quickly. And what they found was 80% of babies had their seizures controlled with phenobarbital as compared with 28% of babies with levetiracetam. And so um, although there can be more side effects with phenobarbital, those are all manageable in the making setting. Um, and, you know, if the goal is to control the seizures, pick the medicine that controls the seizure. And so levetiracetam is clearly not a first-line treatment. Whether there might come some other drug uh, that will work better than phenobarbital. At the moment, we don't know. There are plenty of anti-seizure medicines on the market, and I'm trying to use other medicine. Um, the challenge, of course, is we have very limited or safety data. We don't know what the dosing should be, and and frankly, we don't have efficacy data. So, at this point, we have phenobarbital, and if we're participating in trials, we could try a different study drug. Um, but there, we don't have evidence to recommend any other method. That's very helpful. I my last question for you today obviously has to do with um, the use of EEGs. I think uh, there was a paper in pediatrics that I, I think you also took part of the uh, uh, new classification of neonatal seizures, and it seems that EEG is an is an integral part of the diagnosis of, of seizures. Not really surprisingly, but we have listeners from the podcast that are uh, reaching far and wide, and I think. What you find at each institution is always very variable. Some people will have 
continuous video EGs that they can run for 24 hours, sometimes even more. You'll have people that have video EGs that they can run for a very short amount of time, maybe like an hour or two. We'll have people that have amplitude integrated EEGs and some other units, unfortunately, maybe smaller units that have nothing. And I am wondering if you could uh, just briefly, obviously, because it's a big topic, uh, summarize what uh, should units try to do based on their use of EGs? For example, if a unit has an amplitude integrated EEG, is that is that is that satisfactory? Or no, they they must have a prolonged video EEG. Otherwise, they won't be able to manage any neonate with uh, with seizures. So I think it the answer is it depends. So mm-hmm. the ILAE consensus and guideline are based on conventional EEG confirmed seizures and confirmed treatment. Uh, treatment response. So that's a gold standard. And I think as right. we, as we're looking at effectiveness of drugs in a clinical trial or research setting, having the, the conventional EEG is the gold standard. I fully recognize that not everywhere has access to conventional 24 plus hour EEG monitoring. If you don't have access to that, then it, it's very important to be honest about what you may be missing, right? So a newborn with a seizure is not going to move because of that seizure unless the seizure involves the motor cortex, right? right. So if the if the seizure involves uh, the occipital lobes or the temporal lobe, the baby's not going to say, "Ooh, I see this interesting visual have a rising epigastric sensation," right? Uh, so unless the motor cortex is involved, baby's not going to move. So if you're looking at the baby clinically, you're going to miss seizures that don't involve the motor cortex. The other thing is that. Babies do all kinds of strange movements, and they're not necessarily normal, but they're not always seizures. And so to be to be as accurate as possible and to expose babies appropriately to anti-seizure medicines, really some sort of EEG is really important. If you're using amplitude-integrated EEG, then the question is, how do you optimize that? So first is, um, if you're able to use two channels, that's going to be better than one channel. Second is, if you have the the raw EEG, even though it's a one or two channel EEG, that's going to be better than just having the Third is, can you have backup from conventional EEG if you see a concern fine on your EEG? And fourth is, do you know how to read it? There's clearly a, a user and practice effect. Uh, and, so, right. and so it's really important to get as much training as you can um, and to be retraining over time. Make sure you're as good at it as possible. If you're using um, full conventional EEG, but only for shorter periods of time. Again, recognizing that you don't know what's going on when you don't. So, neonatal seizures are best defined by their EEG features, right? But we understand that there are some some ones there. Well, I think I think that's that's uh, very helpful, and um, I think you you did a, a great job summarizing all this because it's a, it's obviously a a dense paper with lots of information, lots of recommendations, and I think uh, something very valuable for um, any unit who is dealing with patients with seizures. And I think like we've mentioned earlier, one of the last recommendations of uh, the paper is that a standardized pathway for the management of neonatal seizures should be available in each unit. I think that's something that. Um, goes without saying. And I think you even through the paper, I think figure three tries to even outline a a skeleton of what that may look like. I think for all these reasons, I think the paper is extremely valuable. Um, Dr. Shahas, thank you. Thank you so much for making the time to be with us today. And uh, we'll link all this information in the episode page. So uh, if anybody have questions, they can can find that. 
Great. Thank you so much for inviting me. I'll just say one last thing, which is that the ILAE consensus paper and guidelines are all available open access so that That's anybody true. around the world is, has access. That's true. So we can actually even link for, for one of the rare times we can actually link to the PDF directly in our on our website. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> thank awesome. you very much for inviting me. And thank you for addressing you so a really important topic. Thank you. Okay. This was great. Thank you, Daphna. Daphna helped me set this thing mm -hmm. up. So you were pulled back to the unit, so you couldn't be there talking to Renee. I but, but, uh, but it was a great. I'm glad. Time. I'm glad we had the opportunity to do that. We love having specialists on the incubator, and I think it really rounds out the conversation. You know, absolutely, absolutely. So um, we will finish Journal Club with one more paper that I definitely wanted to mention, and that is a paper published in JAMA. And it's a paper that was published this week looking called Two-Year Outcomes After Minimally Invasive Surfactant Therapy in Preterm Infants, follow-up of the Optimist A randomized clinical trial. Now, the Optimist trial is something that everybody has talked about. It's something that we did review on the podcast. I think, um, I believe it was episode 37. Um and we did review that paper when it came out. Now, for those of you who um, do not remember briefly, the findings of the Optimist trial was that it was a trial that included 485 infants between 25 and 28 weeks. And if they were given surfactant in a minimally invasive way via a thin cath catheter, um, when they reached an FIO2 of 30 or greater within six hours of birth compared to uh, control, which was a sham treatment. It resulted in the attainment of a composite outcome of death or bronchopulmonary dysplasia in 43.6 versus 49.6% respectively um, of infants in the two group. And that difference was not really significant, which really begged the question of, should we be given surfactant via LISA to some of our smaller preemies, right? And so today, uh, this week, the two-year outcomes are coming out. And um, the first author is uh, Peter Dargaville, and obviously the Optimist Day trial investigators are all on it. So I'm just going to go th through it basically quickly. This is the follow-up study of the Optimist Day trial that was conducted in 33 that was conducted in 33 tertiary uh, NICUs uh, in 11 countries. It included 486 infants, we said 25 to 28 weeks, and these are the two-year outcomes. The intervention, obviously, was the administration of MIST, and the main outcomes here were um, uh, the, the main outcomes were um, death um, or moderate to severe neurodevelopmental impairment at two years corrected age. Other secondary outcomes included components of this uh, composite outcome, as well as hospitalization for respiratory illness and parent reported wheezing or breathing difficulty in the first two years, which were used as some metric of respiratory, uh, respiratory morbidity after discharge from the NICU. The results briefly are that among the 486 uh, infants, 453 had follow-up, which was quite impressive, and data on the key secondary outcomes were available in 434 infants. Death or neurodevelopmental um, impairment um, occurred in 78 infants, which was 36.3% in the missed group and 36.1% in the control group, which was not statistically significant. Components of this outcome did not differ significantly between the groups, and the secondary respiratory outcomes favored the missed group. Hospitalization with respiratory illness occurred in 49 infants, which was 25% of the missed group, versus 78, which is 38% of the control group. And the parent reported wheezing or breathing difficulty was uh, present in 40% versus 53%, uh, respectively. So 
the follow-up study um, of these infants um, did not really reduce the incidence of death or no other mental uh, impairment by two years of age. Um, however, there may be a little bit of a tendency towards uh, adverse, uh, lower adverse respiratory outcomes, which again has probably can be discussed at length considering baseline characteristics and so on and so forth. But it is obviously an important piece of the puzzle when we were talking about the optimist trial, <clears throat> because as we know, um, everything that we do in this space is measured by long-term outcomes. And I think that's definitely something that we we had the obligation to mention on this episode of the podcast. And we will link to this article in the show notes. And to round that out, you, we talked about the Optimist A trial in episode 37 and in episode 98. And it's easy to find all of those things now that you've uh, added the search feature to the website. So Took thank me forever. you very much. So That's there's right. a search feature now in the, very in the useful. on the website with transcript on each episode page. Mm -hmm. So you could technically start searching some of the words that were said during each episode. Um, we're getting closer and closer to creating a mind map of all the Incubator podcast episodes. But one thing at a time. One thing, step by step, baby <laughs> that's, steps, that's, as that's they say. Exactly right. <laughs> um, okay. This was okay. a long one. Thank you, Daphne. Thank you. Thank you, everybody. Bye, everybody. Thank you for listening to The Incubator. If you like this episode, please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or the Apple Podcast website. You can find other episodes of The Incubator and new shows from The Incubator Network on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or the podcast app of your choice. We would love to hear from you, so feel free to send us questions, comments, or suggestions to our email address, nikupodcast at gmail.com, or by visiting our website, www.the dash incubator.org you can also message the show on instagram or x formerly known as twitter at nikki podcast thanks again for listening and see you next time this podcast is intended to be purely for entertainment and informational purposes and should not be construed as medical advice if you have any medical concerns please see your primary care practitioner thank you